Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. The main story is, if you want to be a CEO of a successful company, you got to be tall. That's definitely not the takeaway. <laughs> oh, my God. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lynn and Jane Coaston. It's great to be back in the studio for a regular episode. No background noise. Nobody no, enjoying themselves. No guests. There's no, no sunshine or alcohol. Just a grim march through the realm of policy. Um, we've got <laughs> we got sweet, sweet paper coming up for you. Swedish administrative We've got data. Swedish administrative data, comprehensive conscription data. It's fantastic. Uh, but first, we want to talk about reparations. Uh, it's an issue that has been um, <clears throat> sort of surprisingly active in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. A lot of people have said various things about it. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Monday night in her CNN town hall, uh, was sort of the first Democrat I'd seen with a really clean answer on the subject, which was that she said that she is for reparations, by which she means, this is, I think, crucial, because I, I feel like there's a bit of a, a weird thing going on with this, by which she means she's for this bill that John Conyers had had lingering in the House for a long time, which says that there should be a commission to right. study reparations. Uh, this was well-timed with um, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, sort of reemerged from exile to do an interview with Eric Levitz. Not in, so in much exile, so much as it's not on Twitter. And well, probably... well, it's also like self-imposed beslowing of, yes. you know, writerly metabolism. He, 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 has, he has not been offering the world a, a lot of hot takes recently. Right. Uh, but, he, but he did an interview with Eric Levitz in New York Magazine where he spoke on a variety of subjects um, but reiterated his view, which was in his original reparations piece from years ago, right. that what he means by for reparations is – for this bill. Right. right. And in also, because this yeah. to me is a fascinating wrinkle in this because normally when we talk about being for something, like if I said I'm for universal health care, right, and like got a big applause from the crowd, and then when a reporter followed up and was like, what do you mean by that, Matt? And I was like, I think Congress should, should pass a things. resolution creating a commission that will study the issue of universal health care. Like, Healthcare advocates would be screaming at me that like that was like the 
total bullshit. So I would actually like to quote from Coates, who talks about this in this piece. And um, he responds to this. He says, there's a whole line of thinking that says the recommendation for a study on what reparations might look like is something like a cop-out a week. I don't really understand why that would be the case. Look, if you have a sickness, you have an illness, you probably start with diagnosis. The first step is to get some idea of what actually happened. We've never really done that. You were talking about an epic crime slavery and Jim Crow that literally has its origins before there was a United States and carries all the way up to this day. White supremacy is a suite of harms operating on multiple levels across the board. Um, and he goes on to talk about how, you know, from redlining to, right. you know, that specific states that essentially reacted to school desegregation by encouraging school resegregation and basically talking about acknowledging and beginning to co- try to come to terms with the fact, in his words, that this country and its major institutions has had an extractive relationship with with black people for much of our history. Right, but, but, but there's like there's, this so there's is like why a it's here. a cop out though, right? Like if you read that interview, if you read his article, if you read the general reparations discourse, it's clear that he in fact has a strong opinion about this. The way policy development normally happens is that it requires investigation and research and analysis to formulate policy proposals, but you don't need an act of Congress to do that. This is like a grant application to say, I believe, and like this is what a lot of the oeuvre is, is that like there has been a historical crime in which the United States of America owes something to black America. And that that something should be called reparations, but I cannot as an individual journalist like fully assess exactly what the dimensions of that are and like what an appropriate remedy is. And that makes a lot of sense. I as a journalist all the time come across problems whose like full scope and appropriate diagnosis like I cannot assemble, right? But then like you can in civil society – study these kinds of problems. A blue ribbon commission chaired by whomever, you know, could could look into this. And then in politics, right, like if I am a member of Congress in a swing district and I got people yelling at me and I'm trying to decide like what to do in life, I want to know like what are you asking for? Whenever you read any of the takes, like anti-reparations takes, like the question is always like, what like what does this mean? Okay, so I, in in order to kind of like improve this discourse rather than just replicating it, I think that like it's important to talk about a the ways that policy gets developed in the context of a presidential primary, and b what a better conversation and like a more policy generative conversation right. about reparations would look like. Right, like it makes sense that we're in the phase of the primary right now where like there is. The top of the iceberg, which is what candidates are going around talking about in their stump speeches, where like it's accepted that one phrase is going to refer to like a policy proposal they have on their website or an entire bill or something like that. And like either you're in the know and you understand what those phrases mean or you just like the sound of the, you know, like they sound like good ideas. You like the sound of them. And so you're going to support them for that reason. We have one kind of fight going on with like Medicare for all where that's a phrase people like. And then there's kind of this fight going on underneath the surface of the water outside the context of some speeches where like various candidates are laying out what they mean by Medicare for all. And then other figures in the party and the, you know, broader 
Party coalition are going, no, that doesn't count as Medicare for all. No, that's not going to work. Like, that's one way that policy gets developed. The other way is that candidates recognize that there is a desire for some kind of solution to a problem. They start saying we need a solution to a problem and then they backfill. Okay, what is that going to look like? And that's where like that's what we could be having with reparations. Right. It doesn't necessarily the fact that like there isn't a consensus on what this means doesn't necessarily mean we can't come up with it. It doesn't mean we can't like go forward beyond what ta has been calling for for several years. But we then have to like have that conversation. And the structure of that conversation has to be like reparations. I mean, like literally in its definition means a redress of a past wrong. What specifically is the past wrong that we're looking to redress? Is that a material wrong or an immaterial wrong that we're trying to address through material means? Who is the population who has been wronged by that? And, you know, and this is like in some ways the least interesting and least important part of it, what exactly is the government mechanism that is going to redress those wrongs without pissing other people off? Yes. I think those are all good points. But I just want to point out that like this this discourse has been proceeding in I think a not very helpful way for like longer than that Tanahasi essay. This got a little bit wiped out by by 9-11. Uh, but there, there was this surge of reparations discourse in, in 2001 when Randall Robinson published his book, which was called The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks. And this was um, similar in sort of nature to, to Coates' essay. Um, it, it included the same turn in particular that like this isn't just about slavery. It's about Jim Crow, ongoing legacy of discrimination to try to answer certain objections about you know the past and historicity. Um, and then there was at the time there was this big sort of micro controversy on campuses where David Horowitz would go to student newspapers and he would try to buy ads making the case against reparations. And the case against reparations, as I recall it, was sort of framed in a sort of deliberately offensive-ish manner. That sounds right. Um, so, sounds, you know, so like, so like one right. point he would make is that the incomes of African-Americans are considerably higher than the average incomes of Africans in Africa, right? So, in fact, nobody was harmed uh, by this, at least nobody alive, that in fact African-Americans are beneficiaries this of is the a, historical— This is a long-standing slavery, argument. Right. A, this is an argument people were making during slavery that wasn't it so kind and— uh, right. Of us to take slaves from Africa to get to expose them to the sunshine of Christianity. But, but so suffice it to say, the point of this ad campaign was not that there was like an imminent reparations bill that was about to pass in Congress. It was to stir shit up on campus because then a lot of student newspapers would not run the ads and then you would get controversies that may be familiar to you about political correctness and free speech and, you know, this, that and the other thing. And, you know, people would do these kind of takes uh, of various kinds. Uh, John McHorder in the uh, then more centrist New Republic, wrote a big essay making the case against reparations. It made all of the, I think, obvious points one would continue to make about this. Robinson's book made the points on the other side. The whole thing kind of went nowhere, but John Conyers introduced this bill, which for all the sort of obvious objection reasons did not call for anything in particular, but endorsed like the spirit of the idea and then it lingered 
dormant until 2014 or so. I mean, the bill had been routinely right. reintroduced. It's not like this didn't happen, but it wasn't like present in um, – no one was holding hearings on Intellectual it. It wasn't life. like Move On wasn't telling its members to like call their representative and tell them to pass this bill. But also it's like in the interim 13 years, nobody said, as we are now like not clearly this bill is not passing. Nobody like formed the commission. Right. The like Citizens Commission on Reparations right. chaired by Professor whomever and appointed with, you know, a dozen leading stakeholders. So it continued to me in this like state of I don't quite want to say bad faith, but like a discussion that people want to have, which is about racism rather than actually about reparations, right? Like Horowitz, the whole point of that Horowitz ad campaign, the whole point of like so much conservative discourse on race is just to say that the people who are complaining about racism are bad and wrong. They are and, the real racists. And, and right, and should shut up. And then the point of so much of the reparations advocacy, it seems to me, is not to advance a specific reparations agenda, but to try to get white America to take the opposite view of that and to say, no, 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 like racism is in fact a really big deal and complaints about this are valid, um, which I, I agree with and I'm certainly willing to make that turn. But like the closer we get to like actual politics, like what is the point so I think we're having actually two separate conversations. At so least. I would so yes. So I would say that there is the first conversation, which is the one like I think it's more of a cultural and a less time bound conversation about what w reparations would actually mean, and moreover, talking about the real financial and societal impacts of slavery, racism, and the legacy of Jim Crow. You know, we've talked on this podcast and elsewhere about the impacts of housing policy, uh, redlining, for example, on the financial futures of African Americans, the wealth gap, for example, that comes because at the time in which many people were able to start building generational wealth, a whole bunch of people were not basically permitted to do so. And so there's the conversation about that. But now we are in a moment in which we're trying to take this non-time-bound conversation and make it very timely and very time-bound and very much tied to this particular crop of Democratic candidates having this particular conversation at this particular time in advance of the 2020 election. And I feel as if like there, there's a way to handle a non-time-bound conversation about the real-lived impacts of racism in this country and what reparations could and would actually look like. And then there is how Elizabeth Warren sees this actually happening or how a specific candidate sees this actually happening in a real, in real-term politics. Because I think that there's something to be said about the fact that those are two, those are slightly different. No, issues. but I, I think that the reparations frame is actually not helpful to addressing the specific concerns that motivate it, right? So, for example, right, you talk about um, housing dynamics and the wealth gap. And one part of that problem is historical. And one part of that is certain ongoing discrimination mechanisms. But one big part of that, right, is that the actual um, home equity dynamics of black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods are different. And as more African Americans move into a neighborhood, that tends to depress the home values in that neighborhood. 
And that means that like government policy that encourages homeownership operates in a racially differential manner, like now. Not because of exactly a discriminatory element in the policy, but because of discriminatory behavior that exists out in American society. And one important thing about that is that that disadvantages black Americans who are not the descendants of enslaved people, uh, whether in the Western Hemisphere or, or even in, in Africa, right? Because the sort of broad impersonal forces of statistical discrimination, like, have no idea, like, where your dad is from and things like that, right? Like, you are judged to an extent on the color of your skin. And that is, like, a real ongoing harm. And it is also something that has, like, tractable means of addressing it, right? Like, the tax code has historically had a large policy bias in favor of debt-financed home purchases. Now, policy bias was reduced a little bit in the um, tax bill that passed last year. The case for and against that is not primarily about racial dynamics, but it is true that there is like a racial element to that and it helps level the playing field to sort of change homeownership as being such a privileged uh, class of asset building in the United States. But focusing on the like historical specificities of that actually makes it harder to see who is really being disadvantaged and who is really being advantaged in there. And there's like a lot of things like that, right? Like we have good research that race-conscious policies in a number of dimensions can be really, really helpful. Um, I've been impressed by a paper I wrote about about the importance of sort of role models going into um, careers as inventors and, and patent holders, things like that. There's research on the impact that having African-American teachers in schools has. But none of that stuff, I mean, all of that is in some sense about the historical legacy of Jim Crow, but it doesn't – the remediations don't involve actually tracing the lines of historical obligation. They relate to the present day and like present day dynamics that we can fix and that when you understand them in society, it's like – I think like a, a powerful case for fixing actual problems that I think the like historical excavation is – genuinely counterproductive to. So I think we need to take a break and then I think we need to like, I I need to explain, defend I think what I, is actually I sense going on here in the, in the demands for reparations. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P.
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So, okay, I think that there's something of a straw man going on here, right? Like, literally no one is saying if we only had a reparations policy, we could solve racism. And no one, I think, is even saying the core of any policy to address, like, the core of solving racism in the 21st century is for the U.S. to pursue reparations. There are, like, the reason that it's in, that it's been a useful thing to organize around in a like in an organizing one's thought sense over the last several years is that, frankly, the left of center discourse was talking a lot about kind of ineffable, immaterial, behavioral sort of racisms as you know, as of like five or 10 years ago and wasn't necessarily operating from a place of understanding things like the wealth gap, things like redlining, like Ta-Nehisi Coates original The Case for Reparations piece deliberately focused on a very specific story of, you know, redlining and dispossession because that's a hole in the education of like just looking at the way that we teach American history, very few people deal with understood, you know, very few people who are kind of adults in, in positions of decision-making power had that taught to them as part of just the history of things or were understanding that as part of the dynamics. So like giving people a way to understand, hey, these things aren't just the aggregate results of lots of white people making lots of racist decisions. There was an actual government-directed, private capital-intensive policy over the course of a couple of generations ago that is being that compounds current inequities like that is a that is a thing that reparations has as a concept has given us that we didn't have before in the discourse the other thing going on here i think is again we're in the early phases of a democratic presidential primary and so there was i think a lot of frustration on all sides about the role that race played in the 2016 Democratic primary with like this extremely essentialized discourse on both sides about like, oh, Bernie Sanders doesn't understand race. He only understands class. And on the other side, oh, Hillary Clinton is using things like racism and sexism, you know, and trying saying she wants to fight those as a cover for these very neoliberal capital, uh, like pro-capital policies. Like that was an unhelpful discourse. And I think even though a, there hasn't been a lot of Democratic Party navel-gazing, how did we do the 2016 primary wrong? I, like, I'm not going to say the 2020 primary is full of people saying, gee, we didn't have the right conversation in 2016. But it does seem like people are trying to think in a more productive way about how can we get a field of candidates, none of whom are the descendants of slaves themselves, unlike, you know, like which is theoretically the the harm that we're trying to address here, to talk about race in a specific enough way that reassures the base that they are serious about fixing it rather right. than just throwing some nice words at us. Like, it's very easy to say, hey, I have an education platform and also I understand that 
schools are still dealing with the legacies of segregation and that like we need to make sure that black kids have as much of a chance to succeed as white kids. Like you can say that you're not it's not going to show up in the policies you're offering literally, you know, 12 months before the or I guess now like nine months before the first presidential primary. I would even argue that, you know, we're seeing candidates who are kind of using the right terminology. People are talking about, you know, the disparate impact on communities of color. But the reparations argument or the reparations discussion does require some element of specificity, even if it is saying like, yes, we should you know, have a commission to discuss this and to discuss kind of the real financial and lived harms of segregation, racism, and Jim Crow and the legacy of slavery. Um, I think that is kind of where it's drilling down on something to make to see where candidates stand on these issues, even the issues outside of reparations, to kind of get a viewpoint on where they stand on these issues as relates to race. Right. And, and I think that, frankly, we are beginning to see the contours of that conversation. Like, there's definitely a segment of Twitter that has been having a serious, hardcore conversation about whether American descendants of slaves is a useful concept in the reparations debate and like whether that needs to be the population that's affected or whether we need to think a little more broadly about the kind of, you know, the stuff you were talking about earlier, Matt, like the ways in which people who have migrated to the U.S. after slavery are still disadvantaged by anti-Black racism. But like those conversations don't necessarily have to be happening among candidates to be ultimately kind of sucked into the policies they end up proposing. I think that it's just useful. Like, I definitely think the question of, is this a useful way to focus a Democratic presidential candidate who's then going to have to run in a general election is maybe a useful way to think about this. And, you know, to what extent are the harms we're trying to address here actually, you know, like what are the residuals after you have a, a reparations policy? But I'm not sure that that means that reparations is an unhelpful way to focus the debate because I don't really know what else you would be like. I'm not sure that a world where, you know, you insist that Bernie Sanders specifically say Black Lives Matter, which is where the debate was four years ago. I is remember that. That much less productive than a debate where you're saying, what is your policy on reparations? I, I agree that this is part of a continuing trend of very unproductive conversations <laughs> that have grown increasingly distant from the like rather urgent question of like, what can we do to help the most underprivileged people? in America with problems that they have. Um, so here, here was an interesting thing, it, it seemed to me. Um, Data for Progress, um, the sort of left-wing group, does a lot of polling. They like to emphasize their polls that show popularity for, for left-wing ideas, um, but they are rigorous and, and they publish other ones. And, and I thought like one of the most interesting ones they did was they, they polled a bunch of not super popular uh, left-wing policies. One was a 90% tax on incomes over a million dollars which was interesting. People don't like that idea, but there's very little demographic divide in it. Uh, another was reparations, uh, which is like massively underwater with white working class voters, negative 39. It's negative 30 with white college graduates. It's plus five with college educated people of color and plus 15 with working class people of color. Um, so then another one they polled is they called it universal basic wealth, but it's basically the, the sort of baby bonds program that Cory Booker had put forward. Um, similar idea. Universal basic wealth 
strictly dominates reparations. White college graduates like it a little bit more than they like reparations. Um, white working class people like it a lot more than they like reparations. Um, but people of color also like it more than they like reparations, right? So it's not just to say that like, okay, shifting to this facially neutral idea might be more practical because like white people like it more, although they do and that's relevant, but like people of color also like it much more. And it would deliver, obviously nothing delivers like a comprehensive solution to all problems in life, but the way in which getting money would help disadvantaged people in a broad spectrum way, like one of the great things about money is that it's flexible, right? And like it can help you with a very wide range of problems, some of which may stem from the historical legacy of discrimination, some of which may stem from present day bias, some of which may just be like your car is broken and you need like a new muffler, right? right? Some of which may for that matter stem from present day discrimination. Yes. And you can even discuss as Cory Booker does, right? Like you can discuss this problem in a way that is mindful of these broad historical contingencies and things like that. But it frames much, much, much better the fact that like it's a 42-point swing among white working class voters uh, to say that everybody is going to get some money um, rather than a sort of undefined segment of reparations recipients. And, you know, it it really raises the question of, like, it's good. You know, you, you go back to, to Coates' article, right? And just thinking as a journalist, right, this is a brilliant conceit for a magazine feature, right? Like, it's a really, really good article, right, that, like, tells you a lot about a lot of stuff. It brings new reporting to light. It has a vivid narrative. It changes the way you think about a lot of things. It but is it's, not fundamentally an argument for— It's not something that you would publish in, like, a policy arguments journal, well, right? Matter, but it's, it's but not it, like the way that the Atlantic—like, the you know, the Atlantic tends to run a lot of cover stories that are fundamentally arguments for particular things. Like, this is a, a little bit of that married to a very, very well-done magazine feature. And frankly, as a journalist nerd, I kind of wish that more things that were labeled the case for took that structure. Right. right. I mean, it's it's great, right? Like, that would be, right, if, if you could write the case for open borders and then instead of making the case for open borders and like answering objections in detail and working out a rigorous program of how it would work. <laughs> you just wrote like a fucking amazing story about immigration. Like that would be great. And like that's journalism, right? But like, I don't know, man, like politics is politics. And like formulating ideas that like are popular and that help people and that have some kind of specific instantiation that we can write down and organize around, like that has some real merit, right? Like if you're going to spend your precious time <laughs> organizing people to harangue politicians and like try to drag them into embracing a politically controversial idea, like you should pick an idea that if you get them all to embrace it, like somebody will be helped, not you'll have a commission yeah, I mean, like it's and you know, and when he says like, well, it's not a cop out, like, yeah, it's not a cop out on like the higher plane of ideas, but like it is totally a cop out in the realm of like congressional politics, right? Like you don't get to just pass tons of bills every year, right? If the upshot of like a big progressive electoral win was like, all right, now we've got a chance to like tackle racial inequities. And what they did was they appointed a commission and then the commission deadlocked 
five years later with a majority report and a minority report and it all went in a back filing cabinet somewhere like that would be a real shame like when you have a chance to do something do something i so this is actually this returning us to two different points that we have made on this podcast in the last few a few months one of which is like for all the universal like baby bond style framing is currently pulling better i feel that matt you've made the very good point on this podcast recently that like when universal race neutral programs like Obamacare are framed by the conservative press in a race focused this is to help black people get welfare way they become less popular among white people yes. right. so i don't think but you like, don't normally start with right, the unpopular no no no, no. yeah I, I just want to flag that but i, yes. I think that the window for legislative action is a very narrow aperture and basing any presidential program around here are the bills that i'm going to try to ram through congress is you know, you only get so much of that. And, you know, bracketing the entire filibuster conversation, it's not clear to me that the incentives of only legislating for one year out of two are going to be fixed by anything that a presidential candidate can come up with in the 2020 cycle. So, you know, let's talk maybe about like the disparate impact rules at HUD that the Obama, the, the Trump administration is like maybe rolling back. Let's talk about what work the civil rights division at DOJ does, not just in terms of what would your priorities be for this division yourself, but like how are you going to build up something that will have been somewhat desiccated by the previous administration? And are there any ideas for like making it so that a future administration can't just roll that stuff back? Like, is there some kind of rulemaking process on disparate impact stuff that makes it harder to just ignore that in future? Do you want to expand the disparate impact process to other agencies like, say, EPA, you know, or whatever the current, you know, disparate impact status is at EPA? There are definitely ways to talk about this. They're not ways we're going to get on the stump, right? And they're frankly not ways that activists are going to be able to really mobilize an outside demand on. These are conversations that are going to be happening in, you know, offices a few blocks from us in D.C. when candidates come to think tanks and advocacy groups and go, OK, what's the meat we put behind this phrase that we've been saying in stump speeches that we think people really like, but we don't necessarily know what we're going to kind of put out on our website that indicates that we're serious about it? Yeah, I think that that's going to be the challenge because I think we're at this point where we're having this ongoing conversation. And this is a time at which the debate over reparations has been taking place, as Matt pointed out, but now it's become politicized in a very specific kind of way. It was always a political discussion, but now it's been politicized, as I mentioned, in a very time-bound specific way. And so it'll be interesting over the next couple of months to see how candidates kind of reshape and rejigger this concept of what reparations means to them and what that it kind of the intellectual girding will be for that. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to 2016, when we did not have this reparations element of the discourse, I think that Hillary Clinton stumbled into a dangerous zone in politics in which she talked a lot about race, right? And like racial justice and her conviction that she cares a lot about black people in a kind of special way. And it seems to have cost her votes from 
particularly working class white people who live in overwhelmingly white communities who felt that she was saying she wasn't interested in them and their problems. Well, at the same time, she did not propose some striking agenda of substantive anti-racism that had it been enacted would have been like a sea change in Obama era policymaking. Right. No, and, and to the extent that there was kind of an interest in that in the primary, it was very much focused on criminal justice, which like now I think there's a rhetorical shift in the Democratic Party away from talking about race in criminal justice terms because that's so often what President right. Trump does. But so it's like you think pre-2016, right? Like Democrats, right? There have been two big systematic ways in which you would say a Democratic administration is better for people of color than a Republican administration. One is that Democrats support race-neutral economic redistribution and that that disproportionately benefits people of color without micro-targeting them, right? That was Barack Obama. That was Bill Clinton. That was Jimmy Carter. Going all the way back to like FDR in coalition with hardcore white supremacists, like he was winning black votes on that basis. And then more recently, LBJ, Carter, Clinton, Obama offer you a Justice Department civil rights division that is interested in enforcing civil rights laws, whereas Republicans give you a Justice Department civil rights division that is like maybe trying to find Christian claims that they're being discriminated against because they can't discriminate against gay people, right? So those were the things that that you you always got. Like those were like the the twin pillars of the pitch. Hillary did not actually add a third pillar. You know what I mean? She added a lot of talk. And I think you could be reasonably cynical about this. That this was a rhetorical move she made to help shore up uh support in the primary that it was friendly to sort of corporate America and donor class people, right, who are very interested. There was a lot more interest in establishing a diversity group in right. your Fortune 500 corporation than there is in allowing affordable housing to be built in your neighborhood. Hmm. You know what I, I mean? Won- I wonder why that is. <laughs> right. But I mean, but but like that's what I mean. You know what? I've talked on, uh, on this podcast before about like people I meet in my neighborhood with little kids who like don't want to enroll their kids in the local public school, right? Right. I hate the way the phrase virtue signaling has come to be deployed in a lot of online rhetoric. But to me, it does apply to some of this stuff. Right. That, like there are things. Real things that white people can do in their lives and there are real things that white policymakers can ask of white America to do. And then there is like magic incantations where it's like I will say that systemic racism is bad or I will say that I am for reparations or I even just like the invocation of redlining has become like a little bit of this like this like magic word, right. it like it shows that like you read like a good book and not just like some bad one that you got in history. And it's tough politics because I do think that to a lot of people, right, I do think that to working class white people who live in overwhelmingly white areas, right, people in northern Maine, people in Iowa, a lot of these Obama to Trump swingers, this serves as negative signaling. But it also doesn't serve to, like, 
challenge anything right. directly. And the challenge would have the opposite politics, right? Like you can legitimately look around yourself in Bucksport, Maine and say, I am in fact not doing anything to exclude black people from moving into this town, right? Like we do not have exclusionary zoning practices here. My town is all white because the whole damn state is all white, right? right? And now we can interrogate the exact meaning of that. But like it is the white liberals living in the cosmopolitan cities who are moving to the suburbs for school, who are keeping out the multifamily housing from their neighborhoods, right, who are doing like the real concrete things. Yet that seems to be the intended audience for these magical incantations, right? They like turn off one set of voters without doing anything. Whereas if you actually push for doing something, like there is a different set of voters you might alienate because if white people in the suburbs of big diverse cities like wanted their communities to be more diverse, they might take action to do it on their own. But like that would actually address something. Whereas like coming up with more, I do think it's like it, it's signaling. It's like it's empty phrases rather than real actions. I mean, it's almost like the concept of the presidency in the 21st century encompasses a lot of things that aren't actually suited to a head of government, but the kind of like uniter in chief, you know, right. the the idea that how the president talks about America is important. I don't it's not that it's wrong. Like, obviously, it's not. But between the Obama administration and now especially the Trump administration, where like that's the part of the job that Donald Trump really is enthusiastic about uh, and appears to be good at is like articulating what America is about in a way that appeals to, you know, to his base in particular. Like it's very hard to wed the, those kind of head of state functions with a head of government agenda. You know, it's not super easy to say, I want a president who makes it clear that diversity is our strength and also that historically, you know, historically and going through to the present day, racism has been a problem. But I also want that person to be leading the federal government. And so therefore, in order to demonstrate their commitment to the first principle, I'm going to ask them to have ideas on the second principle. Like, yes, this is fundamentally a problem with how we see the presidency. I don't think that it's going to get fixed anytime soon. But it's based in an ambivalence about the significance of words, right? Like, is presidential rhetoric something that is empty that people need to that politicians need to be pressed to come up with substance behind because the words don't do anything on their own? Or are the words kind of the most important thing because they articulate a vision of America and represent us to the world and represent us to each other and like either inspire individual people to do better or give them license to do worse? Like I have seen often the same people make each of those arguments, and I think it's worth thinking about in what respects we think rhetoric is and isn't sufficient, not just when it, you know, is like does and doesn't matter. Let's take a break and we'll and we'll delve into the white paper. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, this paper, this this is not a new paper. It's a 2017 paper, but it was new to me, and it's fascinating. It's called, Are CEOs Born Leaders? Lessons from Traits of a Million Individuals. Um, and so it's really cool. They look at Sweden specifically, not like all CEOs everywhere on the planet. Uh, but they get a very comprehensive data set because they are able to use conscription data to get um, – a lot of information about the characteristics of basically every man in Sweden. And then they are able to use, I guess it's tax data, to figure out like what everybody's job is later in life. Um, and so they can really see like how do CEOs compare to average people? Um, how do CEOs of big companies compare to CEOs of medium-sized ones? And how do people with CEO-like traits who do not become CEOs, like, like what is it that they go and do? I was most impressed by some just broad stylized facts that Dara seems to think I'm missing the point on. I do. Um, <laughs> but so one thing is, they, so they show cognitive ability, right? And they sort of divide them up into nine chunks. And, you know, Depending on what your your priors are, I, I, this first came to my attention because I opined on Twitter that, you know, if your case for equality involves denying that rich CEOs are on average pretty smart, like you're not going to get very far. Um, and this does show like the CEOs of big companies are smarter than, than average. Uh, at the same time, as they point out, they're not like extraordinarily smart. Right. It's it's not like a like like a crazy genius demographic, but it is smarter than average. Um, they really excel on various non-cognitive abilities. That's where that's where the CEOs like really sort of kick it off. And, you know, again, that kind of makes sense, right? Like running a company is not like being like a lone genius in a room, like you're dealing with other people and their bullshit constantly. Um, then the other thing is that CEOs of big companies are um, substantially taller on average, than the general population. To me, that's the most fascinating thing because there's there's no good reason why being tall really should make you good at running a big company. But um, apparently tall people are much more likely to be CEOs, particularly of big companies. And I also feel like this is the entire Better Work presidential campaign is that he's very tall and people like tall people. So in fairness, you're being uh, much... The, the thing that I reacted to before we started taping was Matt saying that the... Upshot of this paper was that CEOs were tall and Beto is tall or Beto is tall and therefore, you know, he would be a good president. For one thing, like <laughs> it's very there's a lot of discussion in here, not just between various types of firms, but, you know, various professional sectors. What they're doing here is they're comparing by specifically comparing CEOs to people in other you know, high skill professions, they're eliminating a certain like this is not a paper that purports to explain why of everybody in a country, certain people become CEOs. This is a paper that limits itself pretty explicitly to we understand that there are going to be certain socioeconomic, certain educational benefits that like have already been baked in by the time you're 18. 
given this snapshot of people as they are at 18, what can we predict about where they're going to go with the rest of their career? So it is, it insulates itself from some of the like, well, there's already a lot of social inequality that determines who gets to be a CEO by saying, yeah, yeah, we're not looking at that. We're looking right. at the people who already have these benefits. So like, so it's not at all clear that we're talking about generic leadership. We're talking pretty clearly about being a CEO of a business firm. They talk right. to a certain extent about like, you know, people who choose to go into other professions uh, do not necessarily have the wage premium, even if they have the skills that CEOs have. But the other thing is that, Matt, what you said was that it was height that made somebody a CEO, which is the least important. Like when they try to put together linear combinations of which sets of traits matter the most, it's really it's like the majority is this kind of non-cognitive ability thing. It's relative weights of 58% for non-cognitive ability, 31% for cognitive ability, and 12% for height. So, like, yes, height is the one is the thing that like seems most obviously unrelated to being a CEO, but it does also strike easiest me to that, measure. <laughs> well, fair. If enough. you don't have access to this rich set of conscription data, yeah. you can just look at the candidates, see which one. I, I will say that it occurred to me reading this paper that like the best argument for universal conscription is that you get really good data on people. <laughs> but like it really it does seem that the lesson of this paper is that CEOs in particular have to cultivate this weirdly holistic, like when we're talking about non-cognitive ability, we're talking about things like taking initiative and like strong emotional stability. Or and, interpersonal skills, because right. the ability to be in some ways, we've used this term in a lot of different ways. And I mean this in the most objective objective way possible, but charismatic. Um, the ability to be convincing, um, you know, like the kind of back and forth that you need to have, not just to like have a discussion, but to win a discussion in a corporate environment, that's an example of kind right. of non-cognitive ability. But it does make it fascinating when you put it that way that that's something that like a bunch of Swedish psychologists were able to grasp in the context of an of a psychological fitness interview right. for the military, that they were able to grasp the kind of things that entire business school courses, you know, either attempt to reduce to a science or just avoid entirely is like, oh, that's just unquantifiable. That's right. something that we can't teach you. That's an innate trait. Like it actually turns out that you can break down the kind of what makes a leader a leader into distinct traits that you can just that you can grasp pretty quickly whether somebody has them or not. Right. Exactly. And height, because everyone should follow the LBJ model of just looming over people threateningly to get them to do what they want. It worked. Well, that's sort why Beto of. leaps onto countertops. He should to stop be even doing taller. that. That he should not do that. I do. I, I. I personally think the most interesting thing in here is what they're when they're talking about family firms. For the record, right? Yeah. Because they do note that not only, unsurprisingly, uh, the traits that they measure people who are heirs of family firms who like get it passed on to them because they're the son or the nephew or whatever of the firm founder, like they're less likely to have these surpassingly high scores on these traits right. than CEOs who are brought in from outside. But also founders of family firms have lower scores on those traits right. than people who were brought in from outside, which suggests either that there is some kind of ineffable entrepreneurship skill that these skills aren't capturing, that these measures aren't capturing, or that founders are doing themselves a disservice by continuing to run their own firms rather than bringing in professionals. Well, and that's something you see, right? So, like, you know, Google was co-founded by two computer scientists, right, who had a really good computer science idea, but they then 
struggled somewhat to manage a business enterprise. They brought in a professional CEO. And then over time, right, he left and one of the co-founders now has like a very active executive role. And the other one has just like a computer science role plus being a rich guy because he founded the company. Not every company has quite as clear cut a story as that where like the cool technical idea did not have that much to do with the job of running a big enterprise. But I mean, they obviously are distinct, you know, sorts of sorts of notions. And, you know, I mean, um, you think about like like Thomas Edison, right? And he was like such a prolific inventor and like clearly some kind of inventions genius. But like just like managing tens of thousands of people for years, that's that like that is also hard. And it's a hard in a totally different way. And I thought that that aspect of this paper it helps explain a little bit, I think, why um, people in the in the hot takes game tend to be so uh, left wing, uh, because these rich, successful CEOs, though smarter than average, are like not actually super duper smart. Right. Like so, their smartness does not explain in particular the amount of money. they Yes, make. exactly. And probably the average, you know, successive successful like hot takes person would plausibly outscore the typical CEO on like a word sum test or other things like that and could just like out argue you around a table. Um, but we're also full of like highly neurotic, emotionally unstable people who couldn't possibly run a large successful enterprise. And like that's what's actually being rewarded here is like a different set of skills that then are, their value is not demonstrated when you like hear one of these people opine about the world. Right. Because like rich people are often treated as these like fonts of insight. Right. So it's like we we need to gather and hear what the wise CEOs have to tell us at Davos. Uh, but they're not extraordinarily insightful people, successful CEOs. What they are is they're extraordinarily good managers, which is why they are given these big management jobs. Right. Which are important. And as someone who tried to do a small scale management job, it's really hard. And I appreciate the value of it. Um, but like it's a weird mismatch, I would say, in our society between not just how wealth is allocated, but how certain kinds of social prestige are allocated to people who are wealthy when it's not that it's totally undeserved or that they have no useful skills or something, but it's not the kind of skills that necessarily makes you someone who's like book we should read. Right. And, you know, it's not just a question of, oh, the people who are going to who are scoring best on the cognitive ability aren't necessarily people in CEO positions. The people who score best on all three of the like cognitive, non-cognitive, and height traits, even some of them who are in business aren't necessarily in CEO positions. There's definitely no implication in this paper that like if you polled if at conscription uh, certain 18-year-olds were just slotted into management track positions at major firms that, like, the population that resulted from there 30 years after would be the same population as is currently running these major Swedish firms. Like, they do say, oh, we think that the Swedish model is at least as rational in picking CEOs as anybody else, which seems – you know, which they say makes it comparable to other countries, which kind of ignores the idea that other countries might be less rational in picking CEOs. But, like – there's definitely a certain amount of fixed effects of education and income here. There's a certain amount of just choice and whether you want to go into a certain industry. And there's obviously a certain amount of luck. 
But the upshot of this paper is that there's a difference between what we call luck and what we call like non-cognitive interpersonal skills and that the latter really do matter. Exactly. The other thing that really matters is recommending Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts to your friends, uh, especially the weeds, and even more importantly, uh, checking out the audience survey uh, that, that we have up. You can find the survey at voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Uh, this is going to be a great way to you know help us understand what you guys are interested in, help us kind of serve the audience better. It's going to be really good. Um, so it's great to be back here on our, on our regular episoding schedule. Uh, the weeds will turn on Friday, and I want to thank, uh, as always, our producer Jeffrey Geld. Uh, See you again soon. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 